Father, you're so, so good to us. And Lord, we're your kids. And so, Lord, you, you say we can boldly enter in and receive help in our time of need that, Lord, you'll never refuse us. And so, God, we come this morning and we give you this time on purpose as we open up again a, another tough passage, Lord, where you speak to your kids because you love us, you want to correct us. And, and Lord, it, it's such a great passage. It tells us how to live. It tells us, Lord, how to be blessed and do things your way. And so as we open up your word, we pray, Holy Spirit, you would be our teacher and our guide, that you would just clear our minds and prepare us to learn. We know we're going to be fed. We're going to eat from your word. And so, God, here's our heart. Here's our time. We love you. We ask that you teach us that we go out different than when we came in. And we praise you for all of it. In Jesus' matchless name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. So I read about a story back in 2018. A 30-year-old would not move out of his parents' home. And, and so his parents resorted to some drastic measures to finally get this guy to move out of their house. Court documents say that Michael Rotondo did not pay rent, would not help with chores, and he wouldn't even take money from his parents in order to move out of their home. So despite giving them five eviction letters, him, Christina and Mark Rotondo said their son still refused to move out. So his parents filed a case in the local county court near Syracuse, New York, after months of urging this guy to leave. This is what their parents' attorney said to a news agency. The parents finally wrote a legal letter that said their, to their son, we have decided that you must leave our house immediately. When Michael ignored this letter, his parents wrote up a proper eviction notice with the help of the lawyer. You are hereby evicted. A legal enforcement procedure will be instituted immediately if you do not leave by March 15th, 2018. He still didn't listen, and ultimately it ended up in court, and of course the judge sided with the parents and evicted the son. Keep that nice story in the back of your mind as you open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 as we continue in that verse-by-verse -verse study. Really quick, let's recap where we were. Last week we learned that we're, to, we're called to disassociate with someone who's under formal church correction who will not repent. After we've gone through all the steps, they will not repent. We're to disassociate with them. And again, the goal is not to kick them out or, or throw them out of fellowship or any of that, but it's that they would miss the fellowship, that they would miss that koinonia, that they would miss that love and, and, and to interact with saved people. And so we want to show them there's a better way. And then we said, as Christians, and we're living in this dying, lost, dark society, we're to show non-believers that there's a better way to live as well, and that there's a way to eternal life through Christ Jesus. But, all that being said, we're not to judge non-believers with the standards of Christianity. Again, we said they were dead people. How can they act like alive people? And so today the Apostle Paul is going to show us what a poor example some of these Christians in Corinth were being. And he's going to say, be careful that you don't give Christianity a black eye with your behavior. So Roman numeral one there in your Sunday notes, there on your chair if you have them. Don't sue a fellow Christian. If your Bibles are open, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, let's start with verse 1. 
The Apostle Paul says, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? There in your notes, the church was quickly losing its witness for Christ in the world, first having opening, open sins and now suing one another. So local judges there in Corinth sat on what's known as the Bema seat to judge matters, civil matters and other matters. And it was there in the marketplace. So if someone had like this grotesque curiosity, they could go to the marketplace and look upon the Bema seat and watch these cases happen. Greek culture actually enjoyed and celebrated arguing and civil litigation and legal arguments. Kind of sounds like America, doesn't it? I, I think we're growing that way. Very similar to Greek culture. We have a lawsuit for everything. See if this rings true. If your coffee is too hot, sue the company. If your coffee's not hot enough, sue the company. And then if your coffee is just right, sue the company because they've taken away all your right to complain. How dare them? So Paul starts out with the words, dare any of you, dare you. This means how dare you or how could you go before unrighteous judges between two Christians. It seems that Paul had heard of a Christian that was soon another Christian and instead of handling it biblically, they went to these secular judges, and Paul's like, how dare you do that? A little commercial break. Notice, this has nothing to do with a non-believer being sued by a believer, nor a corporation being sued. This is talking about litigation between two Christians. Okay, two Christians, the big difference. So Paul was telling these Christians, what a terrible witness that we as brothers and sisters in Christ can't handle our own business without going and smearing each other in the courts. It just should not be. Now, I thought of this, and I could just hear the people in Corinth in my ear. Paul, you're not the boss of me. <laughs> I do what I want. And, and so Paul says, how dare you go before the unrighteous, the unjust? There in your notes, Paul is not necessarily saying these judges were bad in their judgment. Rather, they were unsaved, and therefore they are not justified spiritually in the sight of God. And so why would these Christians go before someone who's not justified in the sight of God to try to get some remedy? You know, it's a crying shame when a so-called Christian business person takes advantage of a brother or sister in Christ. It's a crying shame. You, you see these trucks going around, and they have little fish on the side, and you say, I'm going to use that guy because he's a brother in Christ, you know. One time we hired a Christian contractor, and I won't give you all the details, but he went to the same church as us, and he ended up taking us to the cleaners. I mean, completely. Not only did he not complete the work he was supposed to, but the work he did complete all had to be redone again a second time, and it cost us a fortune. But his story to the church leadership, because he's the one that went to church leadership, not myself, was completely different. And so when the leadership called me in, I said, great, let's meet together. 
Let, let, that's what we're called to do, right? He came to you. I'll bring my pictures, my proof in. Let's meet together. And he refused to come in. All the photos, all the proof you can imagine, and yet he wouldn't come in and discuss it. So we had two choices. And can I tell you, brothers and sisters, you have two choices at that point. You can sue or you can let love cover it, take the loss, and leave it on God's account. And I know that's tough, right? Because in a real world, that doesn't always work. You, you can't say, well, I could just take a couple hundred thousand dollar loss. It's no problem. It is a problem. But when it comes to small matters and putting it on Jesus' account, how much do you owe Christ? He died on the cross for our sins. He took every one of my sins and he nailed himself to the cross for my redemption. And so when I say I'm putting it on his account, it's a drop in the bucket of what I think I owe him. So Paul asked the question, why do you go to the law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Now, in the last couple of sermons, we've been talking about how we correct brothers and sisters in Christ, right? Matthew 18, you go to them one-on-one, -on -one, and if they'll hear the correction, then you've won your brother or sister. If they will not hear, and it's still that big of a sin, an egregious thing against you, then you take one or two mature believers with you, and if they hear, you've won your brother. If they still won't hear, you take it to church leadership, you leave it in their lap, and you walk away. This all is done, by the way, first allowing love to cover the sin if it can, right? Not every time you offend me do I need to say, okay, Matthew 18 says. No, let love cover it. Don't sweat the small stuff. But if that person still is stiff-necked and still refuses after church correction, after the leadership has gone to them, that's when, as Paul says, we turn them over. Something you must remember, we have the same Father. If we are believers in Christ, we should humbly test ourselves, check our own eye, make sure our hearts are right. That is a kingdom sibling. And we shouldn't take this stuff light at all. But if one side refuses correction over the other, the church really can't do anything about it. Right? I mean, if two people are fighting and, and one will not do it biblically and they say, pound sand, I'm out of here, what are we going to do? Here's the key. And, and listen, th this, this hurts, so I'm glad to share it with you. If either the offender or the one who was offended does not handle it biblically, they are in sin. Siblings love one another. Well, you just don't understand how hard they're to get along with. Give me a break. Let love cover it then. If love can't cover it, handle it like a believer. And so Paul asks the questions, don't you know that the saints are going to judge the world? What does that mean? We're going to judge the world. Didn't we just get told not to judge the unbelievers? Some, like J. Vernon McGee, says that saints will pass judgment on the affairs of the world like a governor in the millennial kingdom. That's what he believes. Revelation 5.10, the apostle John said, And have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. There in your notes, true followers of Jesus Christ will rule and reign with him as judges, that's governors, in the millennial kingdom of Christ. For those of you who have not studied end times, 
the thousand-year reign of Christ happens after the tribulation and before the great white throne judgment, where the wicked are judged, where Jesus rules for a thousand years over a perfect kingdom. And we as his followers will be his governors and priests and rule and reign with him. Paul told his protege Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.12, If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, catch this, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. So someday, in the millennial kingdom, Christians will judge the world. So knowing that, knowing our future, why then do two believers go to an outside unbelieving judge against one another? That's Paul's whole statement. But the next one's even better. Roman numeral 2, Christians will judge the angels. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? Back when we were studying the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 3.10, Paul said this to that church. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church. To who? To the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Do you understand that God uses the church to educate principalities and angels and other heavenly beings? Think about this. This is just mind-boggling to me. This is what David Guzik said. God doesn't use angels to reveal his wisdom to saints, and that goes against a lot of modern teaching. But he does use the saints to reveal his wisdom to angelic beings, both faithful and fallen angels. This reminds us that we are called for something far greater than our own individual salvation or sanctification. There in your notes, we, the church, are called to be the means by which God teaches the universe a lesson, and a beautiful lesson. Saints, I have said this before. You do not go to church. You are the church. This is just a building. This is a building where the church that happens to go to Living Faith Fellowship meets. This is not the church. You are the church. And so I want you to imagine for a minute, because this is just mind-boggling. Imagine for a minute being one of these eternal beings in heaven. Okay? And you're around the throne of God, and all of a sudden you're learning all about God's grace by those people. You get to watch this going on, and you're learning a lesson by the church. You see, angels are created beings. This is true. But they're not created in the image of God like man is. Neither are they all knowing like God is. But they were created before a lot of other things were created. Now, the Bible's not specific about what time the angels were created within the creation account. But we do know for a fact that they were created before man was created. So imagine this. These angels get to watch man being created. 
there in your notes. So it seems as if the angels witnessed the Lord make the stars, space, the planets, the earth, and everything on it. And again, imagine being one of these guys, and then all of a sudden God makes Adam. And he says, the Trinity talking to themselves, let us make man in our image. And the angels are sitting back going, wait. Why? We're not in the image of God. Why? Why this flawed being? Why? And so I want you to think about Satan for a minute. Many people believe he was the head of the angels, and here he is watching this happen. I'm not made after the image of God, and God just created that no good in his image. Imagine the jealousy of Satan for just a minute. I read an article about the jealousy of Satan I want to share just a little bit with you. It says, many argued that the devil was the leader of a group of angels who were jealous that Adam had been given so much as an elevated status in God's creation. Can you imagine the accuser of the brethren rubbing this failure of of man in God's face? God, you created him in your image, and look, he sinned against you. Told you you shouldn't have done that. Satan may have said something along these lines. You made these weak, worthless beings in your image, and now look, they have failed you but good. So what does that make us then? The failure saved by God's grace. Every one of us, failures, and the angels who are not made in God's image look down on us, failures, who now by God's grace are made God's own special people. So we are to witness God's grace to principalities and heavenly beings. It's a mind-boggler to me. When I first learned of uh, Ephesians chapter 3, I was like, wow, that's amazing. What a position God has put man into. Man was made in the image of God. But after the fall, we were made a little lower than the angels. Hebrews 2.9 says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. You see, when Jesus took upon himself at the incarnation human flesh, he was made a little lower than the angels, yet his dual nature at the same time He had the very nature of God, the dual nature of Christ, a little lower than the angels, the creator God in one being. Paul said in Philippians, Jesus made himself nothing by taking on the nature of a servant when he took on human flesh. So the apostle Paul is telling believers, not only are you going to rule the world someday, but you're actually going to judge angels. And these are not the fallen angels, right? Because we know that God's already judged them. The Greek word for judge here is krino, which means to rule or to govern. To rule or to govern. So we're going to have authority over holy angels in the millennial kingdom someday. Think about this. And so as Paul's trying to teach you, he's like, this is the elevated position of a believer in Christ. Why then do you go to non-believers to fight your case? Why? Why do you do it? 
And again, we know from the Old Testament that God's already judged the fallen angels. And, and so Christ is exalted. And in the millennial kingdom, we rule and reign with him. This is what G. Campbell Morgan said. How great is God's destiny for redeemed men and women? Is there any statement in the epistolic writings in certain senses which has a more definite and tremendous implication of the union of the saints with the Lord? Look back at verse 4 one more time. Paul again, If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? There in your notes, someday Christians will judge the angels. So why would believers allow non-believers to decide matters between Christians? Roman numeral three. Realize the error of the decision. Look at verse five. Paul says, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? Remember what Paul said a couple of chapters ago. 1 Corinthians 4.14, he said, I don't write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. So there Paul said, I don't want to shame you, but here Paul says, shame on you. In this matter, in suing a believer with another believer, shame on you. Secular courts, that's terrible. Remember how proud the, the Corinthians were of their wisdom, right? I mean, the Greek culture, they thought they were just full of wisdom. They knew everything. They had possessed everything. And Paul says, don't you have one? Don't you at least have one wise person among you? But brother goes against brother. Uh, again... Hear this, this instruction has nothing to do with suing a non-believer or suing a corporation, or, or, by the way, it has nothing to do with a crime either. If there's a crime committed, that's why we have the police. Someone commits a crime in a church, we take it seriously. It has nothing to do with that whatsoever. This is one believer doing a business deal with another believer, and they can't come together, take it to the church. There in your notes, Leon Morris said in this instance, to judge means to give a decision rather than conduct a trial. You know, someone can take this teaching to an illogical conclusion, and this is where we find abuse within the church, right? Because we say, the church is all-knowing, you can't go to the authorities. So again, you've got to know this is, has nothing to do with abuse or unreported crimes. This is everything to do with one Christian suing another Christian in a business matter. And you might say, can we never go to court then? Well, the Apostle Paul himself, who wrote the book of Corinthians, went to court. Remember the time? When Paul felt that his rights as a Roman citizen were being infringed upon, he took it all the way to Caesar. Acts 25.9 Festus, wanted to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me concerning these things? So Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done nothing wrong, as you very well know. For 
I am a fellow offender or have committed anything deserving of death, I do not object to dying. But if there is nothing in these things of which these men accuse me, no one can deliver me to them. I appeal to Caesar. But here Paul's saying, when it's brother against brother, business deal, and you can't work it out amongst yourselves, take it to the church. You know, within our modern law, we have what's known as the ecclesiastical abstention doctrine. Say that three times fast. According to the Dallas College of Law, it basically means that courts cannot decide within a church who should be preaching the gospel or, or what they really believe, the internal workings of a religious organization. And so it stops judges and juries from saying, no, that person really doesn't believe this or that. And they, so in other words, they can't come against the church's doctrine. But churches are not immune when it comes to crime. It's a total different story. Guzik said this, it's important for Christians to settle disputes among themselves according to God's principles. There in your notes. This can be done either through the church or through Christian arbitration. But today, even as in Paul's day, there's no reason for Christians to sue one another. And why? Why is this such a big deal? Why is Paul making such a big deal? Obviously, the church at Corinth had some problems with this and they were being a poor example. So Roman numeral four, your win in court is actually a loss. It's actually a loss. Look at verse seven. He says, now, therefore, it's already an utter failure for you that you go to the law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? Catch what Paul says. No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat. And you do these things to your brethren. Wearsby said the members were suing each other had already lost. Even if they won their cases, they had incurred a far greater loss because they disobeyed the word of God. There in your notes. Now, therefore, there is utterly a fault among you can be translated. It's already a complete defeat for you. I don't know about you, but I have a hard time being taken advantage of, right? I would rather you punch me in the face than take advantage of me. A couple things I can't stand, and, and that's knowing when someone's playing me. Man, I hate to be played. I hate it because I feel like such a fool after it's over with. You know, it, it's like the who. You know, they would sing, I won't be fooled again, right? I mean, I hate it. That's one thing I just cannot stand, and I've had to grow through time where... Okay, God, I'm going to put it on your account. Again, I owe you so much, I'm going to put it on your account. And, and notice what Paul's saying. The importance of your Christian witness is so much more important than your personal rights. But Paul, I'm an American. My forefathers died for my right. These are my rights. The Bill of Rights give me, that's my personal rights. Paul says, why don't you rather accept wrong? <laughs> why don't you rather let yourselves be cheated than have this happen? Paul, how could you even say that? What do you think this is? Well, you see what happened was, Paul had an eternal perspective. 
what Paul is saying is, yeah, I understand having a retirement. I understand having nice things. I understand all that. But this is simply a dress rehearsal. You understand? And by the way, who gave you wealth? By the way, who let you have that stuff? Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. So who gave you that stuff? So if God's telling you just take a loss and let it go, as Frozen would say, let it go. <laughs> Paul said in Galatians 2.20, and here's a, a verse we don't like, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Ask a crucified person how many rights they have. Zero. He also said in Colossians 3.3, For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So it's better to accept the wrong. And I know this is contrary to the world. Can I tell you something? Everything in Christianity is contrary to the world. Right? Paul's saying, can I tell you a secret? God's arithmetic is not yours. I've seen this in this church. God's arithmetic is not yours. Two plus two equals four. Not in God's economy. If God wants to give you something, two plus two equals ten million. 120 minus 30 equals 200. No, it doesn't. Oh, you want to bet? I lived through it. 120 minus 30 equals 200 in two months. How can that be? Listen, isn't it better to accept wrong and put it on God's account and just say, God, I trust you. Here, here's the problem. We don't want to trust God. We don't want to trust him. It's mine. That's mine, God. And God said, let it go, Rich. I'm going to give you so much more. No, 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 no. And I know I'm, am I stomping on your toes a little bit? But then notice what he says in verse 8. I love this. No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat. So he's saying, you guys are cheaters. And you're doing these things to your brethren and then you're complaining about it. There in your notes, not only were these Christians not willing to suffer a wrong for the sake of Christ, Paul actually accuses them of being guilty of the same wrongdoing themselves. My sin looks terrible when you do it. How do I recognize the sin in your life so well? Because I got it in my life. Again, it's a crying shame when a Christian business takes advantage of a brother or sister and it, it gives such a black eye to Christianity. You know, I used you because you had that little fish on the side of your truck. I thought you were a believer. Well, I am. And again, that story, that contractor, true story. We hired the guy because he was a contractor in our church. Ooh. And he took us for a long ride. A long ride. It cost us a lot of money, lost a lot of time, and it just broke my heart. But at the end of the day, when he wasn't willing to reconcile, we had a choice. We've had this choice four or five times over the past 20 years, where something got done to us, and we had a choice. Sue 
or put it on God's account. And I know it's tough. I'm not trying to make light of it. I get it. But what do you do when it's a brother or sister? And, you know, I would say you start with prayer. Start right there. Because each time that Sandra and I were in a position where we had a lawsuit that could win, whether it be against an organization or whether it be against a person, we prayed. And I tell you what, I'll tell you one time that's not related to Klamath Falls to try and keep it light. But there was one time when clearly, clearly we had a case and Sandra got really hurt, had an operation and we had a case and you wouldn't believe it. And we prayed until the statute of limitations was up. The day after the statute of limitations was up, it was like a Mack truck came off our shoulders. Every day until that day, it was like, we should sue. We should sue. And we kept praying and praying and we kept, no, no, no. And I'm telling you, on the day after, we had no more recourse. We were free. And God, by the way, made up the difference. Isn't that crazy? God took care of us. We shouldn't cheat anybody, but especially brothers and sisters in Christ. Listen to what Paul said in Galatians 6.10. He said, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are the household of faith. Do you know that many people have rejected Christianity because of a poor witness, especially in business? After reading about the life of Christ, Gandhi loved the Sermon on the Mount. He thought, man, that is the best thing I've ever read. But to his dismay, Gandhi never accepted Christ. And so the Christian missionary E. Stanley Jones asked him, Mr. Gandhi, though you quote the words of Christ often, why is it that you appear so adamantly against becoming one of his followers? And this is what Gandhi said. Oh, I don't reject your Christ. I love your Christ. It is just that so many of you Christians are so unlike Christ. That's a black eye. There in your notes, we can never live Christ-like until we die to self and allow the Holy Spirit full control of our lives. So let's get practical this morning. Remember the story I started with with the 30-year-old who wouldn't move out. Got asked to move out, got all these eviction letters. Even his parents begged him, here's some money, just go. And they finally end up having to go to court, and I wonder who was wrong. Yes. Who was wrong? You know, who's at fault? What a crying shame that family members act that way. And some of us have broken homes, and some of us come from dysfunctional families that treat each other. I mean, I get treated better by a guy I've never met than my family. But I understand that, but that doesn't give me the right. If I've been crucified with Christ, again, pray and hear the Lord. Don't just, you know, lay down every time on a business deal, but hear the Lord. And if he says, hey, I got this, let him have it. You see, Christians, even after salvation, sin. And our pride can get in the way sometimes. But we got to represent the Lord to a lost world. How are they going to know any different? There in your notes, if all Christ followers surrendered to the Spirit and humbled ourselves, these issues would not exist in the body of Christ. So Paul's instructing 
ask yourselves, how are you treating one another? How's it going? Because the world's watching. The world's watching. How do we correct a brother? We gossip about it, of course. How are you transformed? How are you different? How do you love the way Jesus does? So with love and compassion, we show the world there's a better way. You know what? They should have sued that guy. Man, that's a lot of money. Yeah, but God's bigger. God's arithmetic's not your arithmetic. And, and so the best way that we can handle our brother or sister, sit down and talk about it. You know, don't insist on your own rights. Let the Holy Spirit have control. Pray it up. Be, be clothed with the form of God. Make sure you go into those meetings ready to go. All of this life is simply a dress rehearsal. I thought about this so many times. When I've been to heaven, say, 643 years. Not 644, 642. But when I've been to heaven 643 years, I wonder how much I'm going to look back and go, man, I wish I would have sued that guy. Man, I wish I'd have left my kids like 50 more bucks. Nothing against my kids, but I don't care what I leave them. This is a dress rehearsal. So we hold on loosely. We let the Lord call the shots because I'm telling you, he can grow our bank account faster than anybody I've ever seen. And if he wants us to be broke, there's a reason. If he wants us to have much, there's a reason. I personally know that I can't handle wealth. I've learned that in life because if I could, he'd have given it to me. But it's okay. He takes care of all my needs and a lot of my wants. And you know what? If he says, hey, Rich, I want you to let that go and, and just, hey, $1,000 more, do it. Okay. I hope I'm always in the position to say, yes, Lord. Because here's the thing. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Or are you just like some of the words he had to say? Hold on loosely. Jesus told us these things. The reason he gave us these instructions is so that we can have the abundant life. Think about this. He made you. This is the owner's manual. Do it my way. It will come out well. I promise you. I promise you. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on back up. And every week we have a response time with some elders and their wives and different prayer partners in the back. We would love to pray with you. And I know like Corinthians is one of those tough books. There's parts of it that are tough. I promise you it's, there's some good parts coming. But if God put every word, it's God breathing, given for inspiration that the man of God, that is the man and woman of God, may be thoroughly equipped, ready for every good work. Every word of this, we should hang on to the edge of our seats because he is telling us how to have abundant life. So as we worship, let's focus our eyes firmly on him. Give him the praise and glory that he is due. And God is so good to us. Let's pray. Father, we worship you. And Lord, like a good parent, you tell us how it should go. And when we get to the other side of these things, sometimes we look back and go, oh yeah, you were right. And, and Father, during it, Lord God, sometimes it's tough. And Lord, to say that I'm crucified with Christ, so therefore it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's tough, God. We want our rights. We, we, we don't want to be cheated. We don't want to lose, Lord. 
And yet you've told us the way to win. So God, help us to trust you. It's so difficult to trust you when, when it's the opposite of what the world would tell us. So God, help us to trust you. And, and help us to learn that the abundant life comes when we do it your way. Lord, I thank you so much that you've chosen us out of a dark world. You saved us. You died on the cross that we might have the abundant life and the eternal life. So we worship you now. We give you this time. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And all God's kids said, Amen. Thank you for listening and we hope that you are blessed. If you'd like to find out more info about our church or any other resources like sermon notes or things like that, you can check out our website at livingfaithclamath.com. Make sure if you haven't already to subscribe or like us on whatever your favorite podcast app is. You'll find us at Living Faith Fellowship Klamath Falls. Again, be blessed. Be blessed.